When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the Startup No More Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. Oh, and our guest is Jack Gretzinger, co-founder, CEO, Seat Geek. Now, Jack, we are the honest podcast. Like, you know, I say <laughs> the things, only one. The thing that, well, I think it's true. Everybody thinks you have to be perfect. It has to be edited. This, that, like, this was take two. You know, we we went through this, but I thought it was good because we do like to rate how Eben does on his sort of ad lib of the <laughs> intro. I gave it a four. You initially gave it uh, an eight, saying maybe you were thinking nine. I thought he punched it up a little bit on that second oh, he try. Did. He did. So I'll raise to a five because he knew he had to do something. You stick him with the eight, eight or going nine? nine. I thought it was All right. So you're bumping Four up as well. Great. Love it. Best guess we've ever had right now. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about the underscore in a Twitter handle? Me personally? Um, you personally. I hate it. He knows it. I hate it. Not a big fan. Yeah. I prefer a dash. The, worst the, worst the, guess we've yeah. ever had. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there. We, we've run the gamut of emotions right here. All right, Jack. Well, thanks. That's all the time we have. No. Let me start with this because I, I think a lot of people feel this way. I, I really do. I am very confused by the ticketing world these days. There's, there's just so much to it. Eben is, is more of an expert than I am. I, I don't really get the nuance. I do get the technology. Uh, but if I'm, a, if I'm a customer, and whether it's UX why am I not platform agnostic? Why do I like SeatGeek? What are the big differentiators in the platforms that are available to me? That's honestly a big reason we got into this in the first place is because most people are confused. And it's, you know, I'm, I grew up huge Cleveland sports fan, lifetime lover of, of live events. And it's this weird dichotomy where like the events themselves are these life-affirming magical moments. But historically, the technology you use to to go has been subpar and a huge source of confusion and frustration and hidden fees. So ultimately, SeatGeek solves that. To directly answer your question, we are, unlike others, vertically integrated back to the venue itself uh, or the, the rights holder, meaning the team or the artist, such that it's all a single integrated experience. And ultimately, that just allows us to offer much better inventory to folks that want to go to stuff and make it much easier to buy and get in. I love it because we're dealing with a Cleveland sports fan here. You don't even hear like magical experiences. Normally, the Cleveland sports fans yeah. are on the other side of that. Shows you, know? you how much I like, like uh, you know, sporting <laughs> game. <laughs> the fact that that was uh, despite, although, you know, Cleveland's, Cleveland sports are in a good spot right now. The Cavs are, are uh, on a run and the Browns are solid. So it's, it's a good time to be a Cleveland sports fan. You guys have a deal with the Cavaliers. What does that kind of feel like? to Is, is it more special for you if, if it's a team that you grew up loving yeah. versus all the other teams that you work with? 
Yeah, it was really cool, man. I mean, I, I love our all our clients, but it's definitely special to. I, I grew up going to games at Gundy Arena with my dad, and honestly, probably some of the most memorable moments of my childhood, and idolized it. And to get to work closely with the team, which is really just an outstanding organization, outstanding business, uh, to get to work with them and use technology that we build to to allow them to put on games and, and shows is is an amazing thing. Are you still a fan of, of, of sports and teams you grew up watching? I mean, I, I think Scott and I are kind of in the same boat where I think some of the allure has worn off. The, the story I always give, I grew up as a big Mets fan when the Mets were in the World Series in 2015 or, or 14 against the Royals. I had a press pass. I didn't actually end up going. That would have been the most insane thing to tell my 15-year-old self that the Mets would be in, in, the, in the World Series and I would be able to go and not go. I'm curious if you are still a fan. Are you still watching games as a, as a fan or are you just too close to the industry now? No, I am. Yeah, still a huge Cavs fan, huge Browns fan. It's it's one thing I found is that living in New York, it's a little bit harder to stay in the mix of it when you're not surrounded by your friends that are talking about it all the time. But yeah, still watch every Browns game on on Sundays and a bunch of Cavs games. So it's it's like the little part of Cleveland I can keep with me. You know. So, so let's go back to the the, the ticketing world because because you were kind of talking about the the, the interest and, and and kind of the hole in the market that you saw back in two thousand nine when you guys launched. That's kind of right around the time that I started writing about the ticketing industry. At that moment, it felt like there was this huge gap between secondary and primary ticketing. So so the a gap between the tickets that you buy from a team directly or, or a team or tickets that you buy on a resale market. I feel like you guys kind of led the charge over the past ten years or, or were a big part of of kind of mixing those two worlds, which I think a lot of sports fans out there might not have even realized happened. But if in your own words, if you could kind of describe the, the, the way the vision you guys had for the marketplace in which secondary and primary tickets were blended in a way that they hadn't really been before. Yeah, I describe, you know, like you said, the primary and secondary markets are converging. And I think about it less as primary and secondary and more as enterprise and consumer. And ultimately, from a fan's perspective, Make a comparison. If, if you know, Scott's buying a car, it matters if that's a used car or a new car, right? You're getting a qualitatively different thing. You'd probably pay more for the new one. If you're buying a ticket, you shouldn't really care, as, assuming it's knowably valid. You know, all you do want to do is get a good deal and get into the game. So in order to offer the best experience for fans, I think it makes sense to show them a full menu of options. And from a team's perspective, it makes sense to have all of that visible to them, right? Versus the alternative where the team only sells primary. Secondary is this thing that happens outside of their view, and as a result, they don't know most of their fans that are actually coming to the game. The, the data, yeah. yeah. Exactly. What's been the biggest change in ticketing in the last five years? I mean, I, I, like you said, fans, I'm not sure they really care. I mean, yes, I have my app now. It's delivered on my phone. Uh, but I mean, I always say that has to work for digital, by the way. We'll get, we'll get to that. But what's been the biggest change that maybe uh, consumers don't realize was going on behind the scenes? Digital ticketing, you know, obviously there's a consumer-facing component to that, which you realize because the ticket is now on your phone and not a paper ticket. But what's cool is that you can do all sorts of stuff as a result. It's not just that you what was previously paper is now like the same image on your phone. It actually becomes this interactive thing that you can um, you know, use to buy their stuff in the venue. So like we have a, a product called Rally that allows fans to buy stuff, buy food, buy merchandise once they've gotten in. And all of a sudden, the ticket, quote unquote, is no longer just this sort of static barcode, but it's actually the little piece of software that helps you experience the whole event more fully. Now, let's just say, because you sound nostalgic to me. You sound like an old soul <laughs> when it comes to your sports moments. So I'm just going to like pick them. I mean, random names. Let's just say 
I don't know, maybe Michael Jordan was taking a shot over, oh, I don't know, Craig Elo. Or maybe like, yeah, or or Ernest Biner is, you know, maybe looking for a a leather oblong shaped thing somewhere near the goal line, if that was happening. Do we lose something in the nostalgia with this sort of move away from paper ticketing? Will there be a return to it? Although I do know, obviously, with the digital, we are discussing NFTs and other things that can be done with that ticket. But there are folks who still like to have sort of that paper ticket around. I think we're in a transition period, but I think in a lot of ways that nostalgia can be a lot more full and real as this, you know, imagine it's not just a paper ticket, it's attached to photos you took there and, you know, video clips from the game and it's something you can relive 10 years later much more viscerally. And yeah, there's, you know, whenever technology obviates something, there's a little bit of nostalgia for the thing that goes away. Growing up, I had a typewriter that I used to love, thought it was really cool, but (laughs) I, I could never change the ribbon. Good. I could never, ever change the ribbon. <laughs> Evan has no idea what we're talking about. And uh, I uh, I don't miss the typewriter, right? I, I ultimately pretty happy with my laptop and pretty happy that, you know, when I'm going to a game, it's a lot easier. And ultimately, the point here is just to get fans to go to stuff and have fun and for there to be more games and more shows. And we want to use technology to make that happen. And I think digital taking is part of it. Can you be specific there? I mean, are you looking at, you know, NFT versions of tickets that get, get purchased through SeatGeek? Are you looking at video packages that get sent to you after you buy a ticket when, when the game is over? What are you actually looking at as a way of, of kind of using this digital advantage to, to kind of create the nostalgia that, that, that we're talking about? Both of those are super interesting. Like you guys mentioned, we have enterprise partners and there's obviously the leagues. Leagues have views here too. So that, the delicate thing for us is just making sure that all stakeholders are excited and bought into how this all comes together. Um, we've started to work, like I mentioned, with teams to help people buy stuff in venue. So I think in venue commerce, huge opportunity. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, if NFTs are effectively a digital collectible in many cases, insofar as uh, the paper collectible is going away and the ticket, it would make sense for an NFT to become that. We're chatting with Jack Gretzinger, co founder, CEO of SeatGeek. Jack, we, we hear a lot about the acceleration that occurred because of COVID. How, how would you describe the pace of the acceleration in terms of the ticketing world, especially digital ticket? Certainly accelerated things. I think what, what happened, I mean, digital ticketing specifically becoming near ubiquitous was happening anyway. It just happened faster. The one thing I've noticed, and it's a little bit squishy and qualitative, but the degree to which teams and venues are so focused on the fan experience has, as we talk to folks, is, is meaningfully higher. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this at all as you've, if you've interviewed folks recently, but I think a lot of people realize that they can't take for granted that folks are going to show up every day and that, that you know, you got to really care about your fans and that differentiating yourself matters a lot. Uh, let me jump in there. Hold on. Let me jump in because you say that. And this is something, this is my soapbox, if I may. I'm about six inches taller when I have this discussion. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Be- because, I mean, you know who's gotten a lot of kudos for their in-arena uh, presentation? That's the Vegas Golden Knights. And deservedly so. I was out there. The sound is different. The feel is different. The look is different. The entertainment is different. They, they, they have separated themselves. Nobody else, in my estimation, there is so much opportunity to try something new, to be innovative, to, to really test and push. I don't see it. 
I just don't see it. So you say they can't take it for granted, but I'm not really sure. And the most important thing they can do, and that is to control the environment in which those fans will sit for those two and a half, three hours. I don't see them pushing hard enough to really give the experience that fans want. To that point, I actually wrote down some numbers here. I just want to get your thoughts on this, Jack. In 2019, there were three NFL teams that played uh, to a capacity under 90% for, for the season. Right now, there are seven. There are 15 in the NHL, triple what the number was from three years ago. Does that scare you as a as someone who is in the ticketing world? Is, is that opportunity for you? What do you think about when you look at the, the, the fact that, you know, where we are post-pandemic right now, a lot of teams are seeing numbers that are well below what they were at uh, from an attendance standpoint, what they were at just two, two three years ago? It's interesting because I know you guys put out an article, I think it was a week or two ago, speaking to some of that. And honestly, for those of us, you know, in the mix of it, it, it was surprising for me to see can't comment on SeatGeek's recent numbers, but you look at Live Nation's announced their results, Vivid Seats announced their results recently, and the growth is strong. And I think what's most, we're in this weird middle state right now where things are coming back, but there's still a lot of vaccination requirements. Mark my words, 2022 is going to be a bonanza for both sports and music. The, the cover's coming off the ball. And I think we're sort of in this middle state where people are looking at different data and it's a little bit hard to parse. But pretty quickly, we're not going to be talking about that anymore because there's just a huge amount of pent-up demand and also pent-up supply on the music side of artists that rely on touring, haven't been able to do it, want to get back out there to, to earn their living. So I think next year is going to be uh, unlike anything we've seen. What's your business breakdown, music versus uh, versus sports? We don't disclose that. You know, we're broadly speaking, the market is, depending on who you ask, a little over 50% sports and then the rest is, is music with Theater, theater and other events occupying uh, the last fraction. You said my favorite four-letter word, and that's data these days. I'm, I'm just curious, what do you look at? How much do you collect? Those who are really data wonkish, those who do this day in and day out, like it's, it's easy to collect the data. Anybody can get reams of data. The talent is deciphering the data. What do I do with it? How, what is it telling me? What do you look at? What are your key indicators? How much do you collect? Totally. Yeah, that's a huge part of our value prop is ultimately collecting more data and working with our clients to help them use that. Because historically, teams don't know sometimes the majority of the fans in their venue. And imagine you're running a business. Maybe it's not a ticketing business. Maybe it's an e-commerce store and you want to market to your users. If you don't know who they are, that's a really hard thing to do. So we're able to capture a lot more of the data um, and the fan identity information about who's actually at these games and share that with teams and help them you know, create packages, market to their fan base. Ultimately, like I was saying earlier, just get more people going to more events. We had Sam Kennedy, the CEO of the, of the Red Sox on the podcast a few weeks ago. One of the things he was saying that, that they saw in their data uh, in, the, in the past few months was that their audience or their, the, the fans showing up to Fenway Park are getting much younger. That, that it is a younger kind of subset, I think kind of makes sense in terms of maybe who's more at risk in COVID and maybe who's more willing to kind of get out and try to resume normal life. Um, but, you know, as you know, so many people in the sports world are trying to reach a younger crowd. I'm curious if you're seeing that kind of across the board as well, if you think the kind of event going population just got a lot younger and whether that is permanent or if that is just a kind of a, a, a product of this, as you said, this kind of weird middle ground we're in right now. Yeah, we've always had a highly disproportionately younger audience. And I think to some extent, that's just the brand we've carved out and the fact that we led with mobile. One thing we've noticed is that at the moment, people are buying further in advance. 
maybe making last fewer last minute decisions and planning a bit more in the future, which I that, think makes that, that seems but no, that seems so antithetical to like millennial to behavior also. because yeah. yeah, I would think the younger folks are like spur of the moment, yeah, let's go to the game tonight, not oh, let's plan, you know, the game in February. That just seems yeah. antithetical to me. I think it's driven by COVID though. It, it's this you know, people are just a little bit more intentional right now about what they're doing. They're less, you know, carefree. Uh, I think that changes quickly, but it's the moment it's uh, it's a trend we've noticed. So we're going to get to the big, the big news, the the, the big geek news. The, 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 uh, the other four letter deal. word. Yeah, the uh, other four letters. <laughs> but before we do, I, you, you, the, the list of people who have invested in in geek over the years is kind of a laundry list of who's powerful in, in in sports. I want to ask you about one who's actually not in the sports world. Ashton Kutcher, I believe, one of your earliest invest. Does that guy have the best deal flow in like the history of celebrity investing? Yeah. What, how did you get up. connected with him, and uh, and what what was it like to work with him so early on? You know, it was honestly long enough ago that I don't remember how, but he's great. you know, totally humble, wanted to help, eager, you know, true interest in technology. Um, and he's, you know, like you said, he's got a hell of a portfolio. And, and then Nas, the Manning brothers, Carmelo Anthony, Wick Grosbeck, Elysian Park. I mean, you have even before this back deal, which we'll get to right now, but even before that, you seem to have kind of attracted a who's who in some ways. Give us a sense when you work with groups like that, whether they're high profile athletes or owners in professional sports teams, just kind of the, the, the benefits there, the doors that they open uh, from kind of having those relationships baked into the company. We've been super lucky. I think the thing I've tried hard to do is not take advantage of those relationships or assume that big name invest in SeatGeek, they're going to spend 10 hours a week working with us because they're not and really pick our spots about maybe we get to, to you know, call in a few favors a year, depending on the size of the investment and just making sure we use those well and that we're being appropriate, but also trying to, you know, if we're asking for an intro that it's going to be beneficial to the counterparty and a good use of everyone's time. What does a favor look like? Is it is it an introduction? Is it a yeah. you know, a phone call? Is it advice? What, what what does a favor look like in that in it's, that regard? It's changed a bit over time. Sometimes it's you know vouching for us personally, right? I, I know these guys; they you know they care about the right stuff. Earlier on, it might have been more intros. You know, as, as our business has expanded, that's become less necessary. Uh, but you know, ultimately, that with our investors, like the thing we've tried to do is just surround ourselves with a bunch of really bright people who are also good human beings. And assuming that if we've got you know dozens of those around the company, that it'll be a positive thing. Uh, and we've seen as an Eben and I have talked about this a lot in, in the investing community that especially as you bring in like we applied to the limited partners in sports teams, it used to be if you had the check and you could cut you know cut the money, come on in, you're fine. We'd like to have you in our ownership group. Nowadays, you have multiple entities or people with the money seeking entry to the club. You have to now look at where is a weak spot, right? How synergistically does this person or that person fit in our group? How can we best utilize? It really is about when I need to make that phone call, is that person there and aiding in the in sort of the bigger picture of, of the business? 100%. You guys mentioned this back. We chose a, a partner in, in Redbird that had a background very much because of that. And that was a huge driver of the decision. Yeah, I mean, we're familiar with with Jerry Cardinal and, and and Redbird, and you know his other businesses are like data centers, and as well as heavily involved in in sports. What is it that like, like that appealed to you? Um, you know, at the SPAC, Red Ball first went after Fenway, and I think it's kind of funny they wound up investing privately. It didn't look like the sports world was ready for publicly traded in, in investment. Um, but what was it specifically about Billy Bean? Jerry Cardinal and the experienced team of that management team that said, this is right for us. They're, they got an incredible track record of 
it, it's cool. It's not just investing in sports-related companies. It's also helping build them and actually getting their hands dirty. Best example of that is a business called On Location, which they built and focused on premium ticketing, something obviously very close to us. And they really learned about the industry. And that was gave us a common language as we discussed SeatGeek with them because they already got it. Another really impressive thing that they built with others is Legends, which they started with the Cowboys and the Yankees and some others and has become a huge, important business in our industry. And that was many years ago that Jerry did that. Like our friend Sherv Mir Hashemi over at, over at Legends, and uh, sure we know on, on location well, um, now a, uh, a uh, piece of Endeavor. Um, it's like, but there's getting in, there's getting out. Uh, how has your life changed as the CEO of a publicly traded company? There, there's a big difference between closely held and publicly traded. Things you can say, things you can say, I assume. So get it uh, all know, out now. Give yeah, us- get it all out now. <laughs> it's, it's, you, you don't, you don't want to give an oopsie uh, right now. It's just your life changes. You have to, I'm, I'm assuming you need to be more careful with what you say and, and looking ahead. We've had, we made a big effort within SeatGeek really for the last two or three years to act like a public company, know that, knowing that we were mm. aiming towards this and That's not wanting to, you know, on day one be like, oh crap, now everything changes. Rather that be something that actually feels very natural. So we've been preparing for this. I think it's the time in our life cycle where it makes sense. And for me personally, something I've been preparing for with the rest of our exec team so that it's hopefully a pretty easy transition. Because mm-hmm. if, if we do this right, the day-to-day of someone on our team, with a few exceptions, shouldn't change. We're still trying to build the best products in our industry and build a generational company that'll be very, very valuable over the long term. And whether we're public or private, that's still true. We're about four weeks, maybe five weeks since the the deal was announced. One one point three five billion, the valuation for for SeatGeek as a publicly traded company to start. What has your life been like in the past five weeks? I imagine it's a lot of meetings with analysts and investors that you just you know just going one to one, just pitching, give, giving them the breakdown, the deck, the whole thing. I imagine you have at this point the uh, the pitch down nailed pre- pretty pretty decently. Definitely, I know the slides very well at this point, <laughs> but it's you know it's obviously I, I care so deeply about this company and what we've built. So it's, I'm lucky that the, the thing I get to talk about a lot is something I both know a bit about and care a ton about very deeply. And it's a lot of fun to get to talk to a new folk, a set of folks about that. All right, Jack, pretend that I'm an heir to the Novi Williams fortune. You know, everybody knows it. Let, let's <laughs> Fam- just pretend. Family office. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm asking for an elevator pitch, only you're getting in on floor three. And I've, I've just hit the down button. What, Ooh, give me your best, so give time. me your best. Do you need floor five? You, you no, tell no, me what no, you need. No Give me your floor three elevator pitch on. I need your money and here's why SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a technology company that ultimately makes it easier for fans everywhere to go to more events, see more games, see more shows, and is vertically integrated back to venues and rights holders so that they can run their businesses better and know more about their fans, get more data, put on more events, and better monetize the events that they have. All right. Are, are owners behind on this? I know you've said oh, they're doing well, but I think if we really talk to the CEOs of technology companies, like I, Evan and I joke about it all the time, I we think like Jeff Bezos would look at what the sports world is doing and chuckle at like this infancy, like, wait a minute, you you might as well still be on the typewriter. Folks, we have computers, <laughs> we have iPhones, like we can we can do this stuff. Where, where are we in the life cycle? Are, are they like, are they running hard to catch up? I think it's it's changed quite a bit, even since we started doing this 12 years ago. And one of our newest clients is the the Brooklyn Nets and Brooklyn Sports Entertainment here in New York, which is 
owned by a very... Hello, uh, Joe Sai. Hello, John Abamandi. <laughs> but, you know, Joe obviously has uh, one of the, of everyone on earth, one of the most impressive technology backgrounds. And one thing that's so impressive about them and, and uh, some other teams we work with is that they're, they see things in a much more modern, technology-centric way, and they get it. And their, their teams are changing quickly as a result. Uh, I'm not ashamed to tell you that Joe and I have had several conversations about metaverse, virtual real <laughs> estate, the value of virtual real estate, what makes a good plot. Um, I, I, I love, there are certain owners and you know, I love talking to all owners because you know, I'll learn something every time, but uh, spending some time with Joe is a whole lot of fun because I, I don't know where the conversation is going to go. It could be wine, it could be basketball, it could be <laughs> lacrosse, or it could be the metaverse and virtual real estate. But anyway, I'd, I'd love all those discussions. Now that we've gotten the uh, the token metaverse comment, I'll ask the token <laughs> blockchain comment. Um, there, there's so we've seen kind of this revolution in kind of discussion around blockchain in, in sports over the past 12 months. So many of those discussions, I feel like, are uh, areas where blockchain I don't think is all that important, or maybe is not going to be that impactful. Ticketing feels like one of those areas where I feel the opposite. That I can really see a world in which maybe fraction, fractional ownership of suites, or just a clear, you know, transfer a record of of who owns this ticket uh, can actually be really. Uh, beneficial. I'm curious what you think about uh, how much you guys are looking at blockchain and 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 if you think there is going to be kind of widespread adoption of ticketing platforms on blockchain at some time soon. We're absolutely looking at it. I've spent a decent amount of time on it. I think there will be. I, my take is that that change is not going to be a binary one. It's going to happen gradually. So I don't, I would not expect that overnight, say, an entire league moves to the blockchain. Rather, there's components of the value chain that um, are on a blockchain and that, assuming that works and it provides value, everyone, both fans and also teams, get more comfortable with going further in that direction. What do you think the timeline would be there? I mean, do you think in five years, most people are buying tickets that are, you know, the, the platform is on blockchain? Do you think that's 15 years, 20 years, or is it even longer? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I. Uh, I don't have any crystal ball. I'm, I would say in a five to 10 year time frame that feels right. Um, and I think it'll happen gradually over that period versus all at once. All right, Jack, I'm going to get you out of here on this one. It's, it's a question I get a lot from CEOs who sort of play in this space, not necessarily just ticketing, but sort of, you know, tech and sports and consumer. This is the question I get all the time. And please don't duck it. You know, we're going to hold <laughs> you to this one. This is the all question right. I get a lot. Ready? Do I need to be worried about Michael Rubin? Mm. Um, I don't know if you do. I think obviously incredibly impressive what they've done, and they've got ambitions that are seem to be broader still. Uh, so huh? I, you know, I, I'm not ducking it, but I, I say uh, I don't think you need to be worried, and, and we're not either. We're, we're really impressed by what they've built, and uh, curious to see where it goes. All right, Jack Gretzinger, co-founder, CEO of SeatGeek. Thanks so much, man. We, we, we do appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me. Thanks a nice lot, Jack. I don't know about you, Eben, but like ticketing can be dull. I mean, it can be a dull conversation, but because of the, the, the SPAC, um, because of the change that we're seeing and the, and the pace of the change, I had a good time with that. Like I, I though, I still, here's the, to me, I see the one big problem with the, uh, with the mobile ticketing, like the, the Wi-Fi and everything, it has to work. I was at, because <laughs> ingress and egress, when US fans of sports fans, when they go to games, like what are your biggest complaints? I'm telling you, ingress and egress, bathrooms, those are like always top of mind. And ticketing getting in, 
that's a big part of it. And if the little scanner thing won't work, uh, I mean, I've had that all the time. I, I just think, you know, it's got to be a concern that if I'm a team owner, like this has to work. I can't have the bottleneck. I can't have people saying, I can't, my, my tickets aren't calling up. They're not downloading, whatever it may be. That would scare the bejesus out of me. How lauded of you, Scott. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that every technological iteration has this problem, right? I'm sure when sports were first broadcast on TV, there were people saying, oh, the the, the, the screen has to work. You can't have the, the TV shut down. That's, that's or the called, feed shut down. I love that you went to, but point, I love the way so. you went to TV. Hold on. I love the way, even <laughs> your age, you went to TV instead of just streaming and buffering and like sure, all the problems yeah, we've seen. another good example. But, but to your point, the, the worst egress I've ever seen at a stadium was at Yankee Stadium. It was five or six years ago. The first year they went to mobile only. And it was pandemonium outside the gates as people, I think it was the first game of the year, it was opening day. They, a lot of people obviously had not realized that that was going to be the way it was. And there was so much confusion. So yeah, there's always going to be, I think, a kind of a middle ground where the adoption and the tech has to catch up and be reliable. And then it's smooth sailing and we probably never think about it again. All right. Well, let's hope people think about listening to this show again, because he is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She is in charge of our feed at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. We are actuaries in a world filled with unpredictability. We use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.